It is a great uh, delight for Patty and me to be with you here, and uh, especially be with Jeremy and Angie, uh, and uh, to get to meet many of you in the AD, AVF just before uh, this uh, this sermon and this service. You heard the passage uh, read in your hearing this morning in Jeremiah chapter nine, and I I, I shared a little bit of this story um, with the um, with the Adult Bible Fellowship in the previous hour, and I, I kind of need to repeat that as a launching pad for uh, those of you who weren't there to kind of know where we're headed. I'm not going to preach the message I just gave at the uh, Bible Fellowship, the Adult Bible Fellowship, but, but th- this passage of Scripture, which is my life verse, Jeremiah 29, 23, and 24, um, was the result of something I heard when I was in college, and I don't exactly remember what year it was I was in college, but I heard someone say that you're not ready to live until you know what you want written on your tombstone. Uh, you won't make the right decisions in life unless you know how you want that life to end up. And, and that's had several other impacts on me. I, I remember the day that, that uh, it struck me that my job as a father and my, job as a, uh, my role as a husband was to get my wife and my children ready for the biggest day of their lives. And I, w- I would like to think that the biggest day of our life was the day we got married and it was a wonderful day or the day that our daughters got married and those were wonderful days. You know, the biggest days of their lives are the day, are the, is the day that they stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of how useful they were to him in this earth. And my role as a father, my role as a husband is to get them ready for that biggest day of their lives. And the Bible is full of, of uh, instruction to us that if we don't have that forward look toward the judgment seat of Christ, toward our eternal state, toward our time with Christ, that we really won't be making the right decisions here. We'll be making uh, decisions based upon temporal values and not eternal values. And um, when I heard that statement, uh, you're not ready to live until you know what you want written on your tombstone. I'm, I'm just a, a simple enough person to go back to my desk and draw a crude picture of a tombstone. I, I'm not an artist, and, and, um, uh, nor the son of an artist. And so I, I just drew a crude tombstone and for days thought about that as, as I had other things to do between classes and, and so forth. But, but I, my, my, my uh, attention finally came to rest on these verses, and I want to read them again as we, uh, as we go into this message in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And these are the verses that gave me the direction that really set the course of the rest of my life. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts bo- boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And God says, I I am not impressed with your wisdom. I plugged your brain in and I can unplug it. I am not impressed with your might. I am the one who gives you strength. I am not impressed with your riches. I am the one who gives and I'm the one who takes away. But God says, I'll tell you what I am impressed with, and that is a man who pursues the knowledge of God, who knows me. And I, I wrote, as I told you in the last hour, those of you that were there, that I wrote in that tombstone, that I want to live in such a way that when I die, the, the thought of folks would be, here lies a man who knew God. 
And that set me on the quest for knowing God. I really hadn't heard much about that. I really hadn't, um, I hadn't read anything about that necessarily, uh, about that. But I went up to our campus bookstore at that time and I thought, this, I, I, want, I want to read something about knowing God. I came across J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and that book revolutionized my life and set me on this journey, as well as A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, and then his book, The, uh, uh, the, the, the Attributes of God and the Pursuit of God. And, um, and, that became, and that began the quest to know God. And I want to talk in this message this morning and in the one this evening uh, about what it means to know God. And that's the first point this morning. What, what does it mean to know God? Um, there, we read in the Bible there are men that seem to know God. There are men that seem to stand head and shoulders above everybody else, and we admire them because of that. We, we think of Abraham, the friend of God. Imagine when you go to a, to a, um, uh, a corporate office someplace and, and right in front of these prime parking spots, have, uh, have little tags on them with the names of executives and things like that and, and their position. It might say chairman of the board or, or uh, president or something there. Um, uh, but imagine if your name tag said friend of God. Wouldn't that be amazing? And God was the one who put that tag there. He said, Here, here's where my friend parks. And, and everybody knows that's Abraham. Or uh, Moses, the man who spake with God face to face. Or David, a man after God's own heart. Imagine that one on, on your parking tag there. And it says, man after God's own heart. And, uh, and you get to park there. Well, we admire these men. and We, 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 uh, we think, what, what does it mean to know God? It, it is more than knowledge about God, although that, that is a part of knowing God. When I set out to date Patty, we had traveled together on a ministry team. She was dating somebody else at the time, and, and uh, I wasn't dating anybody at the time. I'd just broken up with somebody, and, and, um, and I would, I, God was beginning this journey in our own hearts as a team as we were traveling a ministry team that summer, musical team. And um, I knew some things about her. We were in choir together. I knew that she was that beautiful soprano in choir, and... And I also knew that she was dating somebody else. Um, and, and there, but I, I didn't know a lot about her. But as we traveled, I, I began to see more of her heart for God and more of what God had gifted her with and the kind of person she was. And, and, but, but knowing about a person it does require knowledge about that person, but it requires much more. Uh, it, it is, it's more than knowledge about God, although that is the starting place. It is more than respect or admiration for God, although that's necessary. We can sing about our great God. We can sing of His attributes. We can be very passionate in our singing about, about God and even have a great deal of respect and admiration for God and not know Him well. And that's a great mistake that we can have in our Christian walk that if we can get real excited about God in, in, uh, in a song service or something and mistake that for knowing God ourselves. We can, uh, you know, when, when we look back, those of us that have been around long enough, we long for the days of Ronald Reagan, don't we? <laughs> um, those were much better days than they are now. And, and we respected him and admired him in many ways, and he had his flaws and warts and, 
and um, as, as um, everyone does, and some wrong political persuasions and, and things like that. But we, we can re- respect and admire somebody and even praise them to somebody else and, not, and yet not know them ourselves well. And that can be true of our relationship with God. We can respect Him, we can admire Him, we can even praise Him without a great deal of personal knowledge of God Himself. Uh, knowing God is more than knowledge about godliness, although that becomes essential along the line. Uh, what it means to walk as a child of God, we can know those things without knowing God well. Well, what, what does it mean then? It, it means really to have much personal dealings with God to the point where God is predictable to you. All, all of us have friends where we would say, uh, I know so-and-so, he would never do that. Or I know this person and I can count on him to always be this way. When you know somebody well, you know them to the extent that they are predictable to you. I wonder if God seems predictable to us. Or like the gods of the Romans and and the Greeks, does he seem capricious? I, I remember in high school taking Latin and reading about these gods of, of the Romans and thinking <laughs> this would not be fun to be on the earth with these gods. With all the, you, know, you, you didn't know if the God, where you stood with the gods. You didn't know if today they were going to rain on your crops or burn them. You, you just didn't know. And you were very happy if a God didn't get involved in your life because if a God got involved in your life, life could get messy real fast as you become a pawn that he plays with in, in, a, in some kind of a, a competition among the other gods. But our God is predictable. We can always count on him being a certain kind of person all the time, no matter what. And I wonder, do we know God in that way that he is entirely predictable to us where we actually can rest and find great joy and great comfort and great contentment as we talked about this morning because we know God well. Uh, one of the, and, and that means we, as I said, we have to have many personal dealings with God, a, a lot of personal interaction. It is fun to watch a, in a college environment to watch these young people come together and, um, and discover one another. And you might have this the couple in your class and you might comment to another professor, have you seen John and Mary recently? There's something going on between them. And it's neat to watch that unfold and, and for them to marry and have children and get into the ministry and all this kind of thing. But, but you know that by just watching them, there's something going on between each other that's more than just classmate kind of thing. I, I wonder as people watch us, can they tell there's something going on between us and God? That there's something about the way we live and the way we talk and the way our disposition is and the way we live differently than the world that people know there's something that goes on between us and God. A person who knows God has many, many personal dealings with God. There's a lot going on between, between that person and God. A, a, a branch is abiding in the vine and it's obvious because of the fruit that is being born in his life. So what it means to know God is that there's a lot going on between us and God to the point where God is entirely predictable to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we know everything that he has in store for us. We can't predict our future in that sense, but we can predict how God will respond to us in every case. God will be predictable to us. 
He's called the faithful, covenant-keeping God. He's predictable. If he said something, we can count on it that he will do that. If he was a certain kind of person in the past, he is that same kind of person now as far as his character and his attributes. So what does it mean to know God? It means that we have many personal dealings with him to the point where it's predictable. He is predictable. Well, the second thing is, why is it important for us to know God? There are many reasons, but one I just want to focus on this morning, and that is that um, the most important thing about us, and Tozer was the one that, that taught me this, the most important thing about you is what you know to be true about God. And A.W. Tozer said, if we could take your... Uh, he said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. And he said, if we could take your picture of God, and all of us have a picture of God. We used to carry pictures of our grandchildren and everybody in our wallets. Now we carry them in our phones and our iPads <coughs> and things. But we have them. If you want to see my grandchildren, just talk to me, and uh, we'll show you some pictures. Um, but all of us also have a picture of God in our minds. And I wonder this morning, if we would take your picture of God and project it upon this screen, would we like Him? Would we want that God to be our God? Or are there things about this God that we are really not happy with? And not sure about. But the most important thing about us is that picture. If we could take your picture and my picture of God and put it on that screen, we could pretty much, depi- we could pretty much predict how we're going to respond to everything. We can predict how prone you will be to despair and depression. We can predict how prone you are to anxiety and fear. We can predict how prone you are to bitterness and frustration. We can predict how prone you are to... Uh, a blame shifting and all of those things based on your character on, on your knowledge of God. And every one of us acts consistently with our, with our concept of God. We, we could say our, our belief determines our behavior. And what a fascinating thing it is in the Gospels to follow the unfolding revelation of Jesus Christ to these people around him. You think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What 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 must have gone through this woman's mind as this baby who she knew was to be uh, the, the son of God as, as, he, as she is rearing him. And I, I, I love that first miracle of Jesus in Cana in John 3. And uh, they, they run out of wine and, and, um, and people are talking about it and somebody lets Mary know. And Mary goes up to Jesus and she says, it's... Um, you can do something about this. I'm paraphrasing. She said, you can do something about this. And, and, and he basically says, um, my time isn't come yet. And you know what she does? She turns to those servants and she says, you just do what he says. That is the behavior of a person who knew who this was. You look at the behavior of the disciples before Pentecost and before the resurrection. And their, their view of God is, is, un, is, is, is developing, but Jesus has this uncanny way, we're going to talk about this tonight, of putting us in boats out in seas and shaking them up real good and then turning us to us and saying, uh, um, how's your trust going? And we'll talk about that tonight. But our belief always determines our behavior and our behavior always betrays what we really believe. 
If, if we're dishonest, we believe truly that it does not matter to that God or there is, no, there is no break in my relationship with God or it doesn't matter that I do this. We, we always act consistently with our belief. It's very important for us to know the right things about God from His Word. Would you turn with me to Psalm 50? And David addresses this concept. As the Lord says in verse 16, Psalm 50, verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right? These are, these are the, we're part of the people of God, but who really did not have the proper belief in God. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God says, you know why you do what you do? Because you think I'm like you are. I am not like you are. I'm an entirely different kind of person. I mentioned uh, the New Testament. As you, as you read through the New Testament, notice how Mary and Martha act consistently with their belief about Jesus. Did you know Pontius Pilate is acting consistently with his belief about who Jesus is? And the disciples are as they, as, as they go through their, uh, their ministry with Jesus? Well, it's important to know God because what we believe determines how we behave. Well, what does it require to know God? We'll get one out of three points this morning and then um, pick up the other two this evening. Well, what does it require to know God? We, we have to understand the dynamics of, of any personal relationship. If you want to get to know somebody, we all pretty much do it the same way. And I remember, back, and, and what you do, you extract a little bit of information about this person from them, a little knowledge, and then you build some conversation around that knowledge. Back when Patty and I were in college at, at Bob Jones, um, that, that was years ago, and the evening meals were served family style. And they had these big, I mean, our, our dining hall seats 3,200 people. And, um, and these big, long dining tables are about 22 people at each. So you're, and, and every three weeks, the computer would shuffle you around and put you at a new table with 21 other people you don't know from Adam's house cat. And, and so you have to get to know these people in some way. So you, have, you develop this little litany of questions. You, you say, uh, what, what is your name? And where are you from? And um, what are you majoring in? And you go through these things and you extract a little bit of knowledge until you find some common things. And you, then you talk about those things. You say, what, what, uh, what, what sport do you like? Oh, I like uh, tennis. And, and uh, what, what kind of a racket do you have? Oh, I have a Wilson T1000 XPR T4, you know, whatever. And you say, oh, mine just has a big K, red K on it. You know, I got it from Kmart. Um, uh, and you, you know, you talk about this, you extract some knowledge and then you build conversation around it. Did you know that those are the dynamics of any relationship uh, as, as we get to know each other here? Um, you know, uh, several of you have said, you know, where are you from? And I've asked you where are you from and what kind of work do you do? And, and that's how we get to know somebody and in a very superficial way. But the more time we would spend together, 
the more we would extract more information about the other person, we would build conversation around that, and we would get to know the other person, and they would, they would get to know us in the same way. Well, it is very the same way with God. Knowing God requires a couple of things. And first of all, knowing God requires that we seek Him. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, If thou shalt seek the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, thou shalt surely find Him. God is not playing hide-and-seek where... We, we just get close to him, and he runs away, and he says, nah, 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 you can't find me. He's not doing that. God wants to reveal himself to us. But God doesn't reveal himself to the casual passerby any more than we do. If you're walking down the street or at a mall, and, and um, you're just being friendly to folks, and you say, hi, how are you doing? They, say, they stop you and say, oh, I'm glad you asked. Um, I'm, I'm having a rough time with the kids today, and... And, um, and, and I've got this, I've got this uh, pain in my back, and um, we got some bad news about our water bill. We had a break, and we didn't even know it. And, you, know, this, and, and you, you almost wished you hadn't asked how they were doing. Um, most of us don't spill our guts like that, if I can say it that way, to just a casual passerby. We only really unveil our real souls to other people if we know they are committed to us and will take seriously what we say. And can I suggest that God doesn't reveal himself to the casual passerby either, only to those that demonstrate commitment to what he, and will take seriously what he has to say. We'll talk about this tonight, but there must be a commitment if we're going to know God. And, 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 and a knowledge of God growing with much time spent in his... If you and I are going to know God the way we should... We will measure our time in our Bible not in minutes a week, but in hours a week. And I'm, I'm not trying to give some kind of a legalistic standard, but I'm going to say, if, but I say, if you, if you want to know God, you must spend much time with Him and let Him spend much time with you. We don't do this on a, on a, on a drive-by devotional every day. We do this by spending much time in His Word and listening to Him reveal Himself to us. In fact, this kind of a search, it requires that we seek Him. It must be a passionate search. It must be a search that is wholehearted. He says, if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. W- would you turn to Proverbs 2? And w- w- I want to show you that kind of a search. First six verses, uh, Solomon says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. Out of His mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. God says this this must be a passionate search. This is not a casual thing when we open our Bibles. We are searching for the living God for Him to reveal Himself to us. You know, and unless God takes His Spirit and illuminates this Word to us, it continues to be just black words on white pages. Unless the Spirit of God opens the understanding of our eyes, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. God must disclose himself. You know, it, I, I remember there were, there were a couple of individuals in those days when we were students and you're trying to know people. 
there, every once in a while there would be some knucklehead who just didn't want to talk. You know, and you'd say, where are you from? United States. <laughs> um, where in the United States? Midwest. How about where in the Midwest? What city in the Midwest? Big one. <laughs> you know, you think, this guy really doesn't want to talk. He just isn't revealing himself. Did you know that you can't know anybody unless they open themselves to you? And there are some people that, um, you know, when you're talking to them, it's like talking to somebody with a shade pulled and you really can't see anything about that person. There are other people that it's kind of the shade is half pulled and, and uh, you, you see some things, but you wonder what it is you're not seeing. And then other people, you just, what you get is what you see. Jer- Jeremy's like that. What you get is what you see. That's, that's the way he is. He's just out there. And, and, that, and that, that makes it easy to get to know a person who's not hiding behind a shade. Did you know that God wants to reveal himself to us, but again, we'll do that only if there is a commitment here that we are seeking him with all of our heart and all of our soul, that we really want to have a, a relationship with him. It has to be a passionate search, and secondly, it has to be a purposeful search. He says, thou shalt surely sign, if, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you, you'll really find me. We, ha- we have to be searching for God. I remember some years ago, I was talking with a student, came by the office, and, and um, he said, Dr. Berg, I, I'm, uh, this is a student leader, and I knew him very well. Uh, he worked at the Welcome Center at the information desk at the university, and so he greeted all the visitors, very personable kind of guy. He was an officer in, his, uh, in student organizations, and chaplain for one of them, and uh, a room leader in the dorms, and uh, I'm just a, a great guy. And he said, Dr. Berg, I, I need to talk to you. He said, my heart is so cold, and I just don't have the kind of, the kind of relationship I think I need to have with God. And I said, well, let's, let's talk about your devotions. What, what do you do in your devotions? He said, I, I read my Bible and pray. And, and he said, is, is that all right? I said, yeah, John, that's fine. That's what we do. We read our Bibles and pray. And uh, to, to know God. And I said, well, let me ask you this. When you, when you read your Bible, what are you searching for? He said, well, to be honest with you, I, I, I speak so much to student groups and on ministry on the weekends and things. I'm, a lot of times I'm just looking for messages and, and, um, and, and sermons and, and things like that. Um, he said, but I, you know, I, I, um, um, I look for principles to get me through the day. And I said, well, um, how's it going looking for principles to get you through the day? And he said, not really well. He said, I, I said, can you look for principles to get you through the day and have a heart cold as a rock? Like you said, he said, yeah. And I said, That's, that, that, there's got to be something more to that. I said, let me ask you a question. When you open your Bible, when you look for it, do you, do you know what God says this book is about? Dr. Paisley was a frequent um, uh, speaker at uh, Bob Jones at, um, at Bible conferences years ago. I remember one year he held up his Bible and he said, you can put your plow down on any page of this book and dig up Christ. You believe that? If that's true, why is it that we don't see Christ in every page of this book? I'll tell you why. I, we're not looking for him. We're looking for something else. And those things may not necessarily be bad, but if we're going to develop a personal relationship with God, we've got to be looking for God here in this book. Um, and I said to John, um, do you know why God gave this book? And, and uh, he said, well, to, to, as a guide for life. And I said, well, it is that, but it's m- much more than that. I said, 1 John 5, 9, the apostle says, this is the record 
which God hath testified of his Son. This is a portrait of Jesus Christ in this book. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I want to show you some people who discovered this. This is, this is a real exciting passage of Scripture. Uh, after the resurrection and the women find the tomb empty and Peter and, and uh, John run to the tomb. And then there's this record in, until uh, uh, about verse 20 or so of, of these two uh, men on the road to Emmaus. And uh, Jesus joins them on that trip and he begins talking to them. And he says, why, why are you so sad? And they said, uh, uh, you must be new around here. <laughs> you know, haven't you heard what, what has been going on? And, and we thought this Jesus who was crucified was, was to be our deliverer and so forth. And um, look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning the eschatological implications of the kingdom. Is that what it says? Yeah. He expounded the things concerning himself. And then you know as that story unfolds, they, uh, uh, he talks to them, verse 29, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now that, that was a visual, that was an actual physical partial blindness, so to speak, that Jesus had made sure that they didn't know who he was until that moment. That's not spiritual illumination, but, um, th- but look at verse 32. Then said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures, opened to us the scriptures? I wonder, are you a part of the fellowship of the burning heart? Do you know what it's like to be in your Bible and Jesus to reveal himself and your heart burns with the glory of that? You know, that's what Paul prayed for in, in uh, Ephesians 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would be able to, to comprehend certain things. And in, verse, in chapter 3, he, he has the same kind of prayer. He says that your, eyes of, that your eyes would be opened and that you would be able to understand what is that length and depth and breadth and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. How does that happen that we know God in this way? It's when he opens our eyes. And we find that later on in this passage in, in Luke chapter 24. Um, and he, he appears to them, verse 36, and they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still believed, disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what you and I must pray for. That God would open our mind. They, they had heard all of these prophecies before. They had walked with him. But they didn't know him until he revealed himself to them. And he opened their understanding. You and I must pray for that. Why does Paul pray for the Ephesians that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened? Because it's not, natu- it's, it's, it's not automatic that we actually see God in the Scriptures. It's, it's like we must, every day in our devotions, we must, we must read our Bible and we must chop. The, it's like going into the forest we don't have a lot of those right here, but you go into the forest and you, you cut down the trees and then you cut them into small enough pieces to fit in your fireplace. And that is what we do every day with the Word. We, we take this Word and we, 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 we process it so that we have some understanding as much as we can and then we put, and, and put it in the, in the fireplace of our hearts and all the while beg God to light it so we have the understanding of what we're seeing. And God says, if you search for me as hidden treasure, you search for me as, uh, as gold, then you shall understand the, the, the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It's not a casual thing. It's a purposeful search. You and I have to boil the Bible not just down to the principles, although we must live by the principles of this book. We must boil everything, every passage down to the person behind that book. Did you know that everything we see in this book reveals something to us about God? Every command reveals something to us about God. As, you know, Jeremy came into our family. Um, I don't know that we had any particular... We might have a lot of quirks. He never told us. But, um, uh, but you know, if, if we, in, in our house, we never... Uh, Patty has a relative that when you go into her house, you take off your shoes. And, I, and that's fine. Um, she has very nice carpets. <laughs> they never get worn out. Um, uh, you know, if, and, and if that is, you know, if mom is always saying, uh, put that away, you know, you know where that goes and this kind of thing. Every command of mom and dad reveals something to the child about mom and dad, about their penchant for order or their desire to see things done in this fashion or that fashion. Did you know that every command of God reveals something to us about himself? When God was coming up with the Ten Commandments in the wilderness, this was not a coin toss. God didn't toss a coin and say, let's, let's think about adultery. Oh, tails, that lo- that's lost. Write that one down. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, let, let's think about lying. Uh, that's tails too. That's going to be gone. Uh, you can't lie either. These were not determined by a coin toss. They were determined. Be- the, the reason lying is wrong is because God is a certain kind of person. The reason adultery is wrong, even in your mind, is because God is a certain kind of person. Every command of God reveals something to us about him. Every promise reveals something to us about him. His intentions for us, his disposition. He would not give these promises if he weren't a kind of God who wants good for his people. Every act of God with the children of Israel reveals something to us about the nature of God. So we go through the Bible looking for God. And seeing what kind of a person he is by watching. Jeremy learned what kind of a family we were just by watching us and listening to us. And we learned what kind of a person he was by listening to him and watching him. That's what we do when we go to our Bibles. We see our God. We ask God to show us more of himself. 
as, as, we, um, as, as we read it every day. When I was a young boy, I, I, I grew up on a cattle farm in South Dakota. And uh, our family lived on the main farm complex, the old farmhouse. And my grandparents, who owned the farm, had um, built a house about a quarter of a mile down the road. And our favorite thing in the afternoon, in the summertime, was, um, you know, we'd be out playing in the yard, and uh, then we'd realize, oh, it's afternoon, we can go to Grandma's. And so we would, we would uh, yell in the house to Mom, Mom, we're going to Grandma's, and we'd head off down, quarter of a mile down that gravel road on our bicycles or hoof it down there, and, and we'd run in the house and we'd say, Grandma, we're here! And she knew what for. Chocolate chip cookies. Grandma made the best chocolate chip cookies, and she would freeze them. Have you ever had frozen chocolate chip cookies? There's not much anything better than that. And, and she would freeze these chocolate chip cookies. Remember when the old uh, coffee cans were tin lids, you know, and you had that thing you cranked, and she'd put them in there. And we'd come there, and she'd get out of the freezer some chocolate chip cookies and put them on a plate. She's Norwegian, you know, and she'd get all of these cookies for the boys. And she'd put them on the plate, and we would eat them, and she'd pour some milk, and, and we were all, uh, all done. You know, she would, uh, we would say, bye, Grandma, and we'd run out in the yard and play in her swing set because her swing set was tons better than our swing set. And we'd play with that, and then we'd go home. Now, when, when the girls were little, when they're in elementary school, and my grandmother was still alive, we made a couple of trips to South Dakota, 1,350 miles to South Dakota. Let's say that, you know, we're, we're uh, heading there, and we, we get there, and I, I open the door, and I say, Grandma, we're here. And, you know, she, uh, you know, hugs everybody. And, and I say, Grandma, the girls have never tasted your chocolate chip cookies. Do you have any of those cookies? Oh, yeah, I've got some cookies. And she'd get out the cookies and put them on the plate. And, uh, and then I would, you know, and I'd say, girls, aren't these just as good as ever uh, that I told you? You know, and I'd say, Grandma, it's really nice tasting your cookies. I'm glad the girls could do it. Now, we got a long journey back to South Carolina, and uh, we'll see you. And she would scratch her head and say, much learning hath made him mad. Oofta, what's wrong with you, boy? You know, this kind of thing. You know, when you're a little boy, when you're seven and eight, it's okay to go to your grandmother's for her cookies. When you're 38 or whatever age I was at that time, you're supposed to go to your grandmother's for what? Your grandmother. And you know, this Bible is so full of God's wonderful cookies, wonderful promises, wonderful revelations of his character. But you know, you can taste all of those and he wants us to taste them and run right by God. You know what that means? If we're going to, the, the first thing, if we're going to know God well, we must, we, must not, we must not only have this passionate search for God, but we must also, it requires that we seek Him, but we must also respond to Him when He says something to us. Some years ago, I got this neat letter, <clears throat> and I opened it up, and it was from Bill Gates, Microsoft. I mean, he wrote me. And I opened that thing up, and, and uh, he was trying to sell back office software or something. I don't remember what it was. But what, 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 what do you think I did with that? Threw it in a trash can. <laughs> I don't imagine, because I'm not interested in that. I don't imagine that three or four days later, or maybe three or four weeks later, Bill Gates is pacing his office and saying, I don't understand that. I sent Berg a letter. And, you know, and I haven't heard back from him. And I, I can't think of anything I did to offend him. I, I, I know he's a believer. I didn't swear or curse in it or anything like that. I, I just don't understand it. You, you think that happened when I threw that away? No, because 
That letter didn't require a response because I'm not trying to build a personal relationship with Bill Gates. But if my mother sends me an email or, or, or Patty and I are separated, I'm out traveling or something, and she said, you know what? We respond right away. You can't ignore the words of a person with whom you're trying to develop a relationship without, without damaging that relationship. If my mother writes me and I don't reply, my wife writes me and I don't reply, that begins to damage that relationship. What does that do to our relationship with God? He speaks to us in His Word every day and we don't respond to Him about it. It does damage the relationship. It's not junk mail, folks. It is God revealing Himself to us. And that requires a certain kind of response. Let me give you a couple of examples and, and I'll close with these. When I was talking with John, I said, what are you looking for? And he said, looking for something to get through the day. And I said, well, you know why it's here, it's, it's here to show us a person, you have to look for a person. And I said, what else do you do in your devotion? He said, I pray. I said, good, what, what do you pray? He said, I use a prayer list, is that all right? I said, well, that's fine, John. What, what's on your prayer list? When you talk to God, what do you talk to him about? He said, well, I pray for, uh, my, I pray for my mom and dad, I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for um, uh, some missionaries who are friends of our family, I pray for my pastor, uh, I pray for my roommates. Boy, do I pray for my roommates. And he said, and, and, I, and I pray for the administration. And I said, well, good. I'm, I'm glad you have that. We need it. I'm, I'm glad you're praying for that. I said, now, now, let's say I'm trying to develop this relationship with my, with my wife. And here's the sole content of my conversation with her. Honey, would you wash my socks? Would you iron my shirt? Would you make the bed? Would you fix supper? He said, oh, I get it. I don't just ask God for those things. I thank him for those. And I said, okay, honey, thanks for washing my socks. Thanks for making supper. Thanks for, uh, uh, you know, fixing the bed, making the bed. I said, is this going to make the relationship go anywhere? He said, no, I guess not. I said, well, that's why your relationship with God doesn't go anywhere. So you know what makes a relationship go when we have time to sit down and talk to each other about why the other person is so special to us. Do you know what worship is, folks? It is a personal response to God about something He's revealed to us. It's a personal response to divine revelation. How does that work? Uh, you, you come to Isaiah 41.10, let's say, in your reading. God says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Is, is that a neat promise? That's a fantastic promise. So what do you do with that? Oh, I've got to write that on a card and memorize that. That would be really good. That's, that's not bad. I've got to underline that in my Bible. That's not bad. But what do we do with God with this? This is where we stop right now. I say, God, let me tell you what I just saw. You said, fear thou not because you were with me. You know how anxious I've been about this or that thing. Thank you for the promise that you were right here with me. Calms my heart down just thinking about the fact that you were here. And be not dismayed, don't be discouraged. I am thy God. Thank you for being that kind of God who wants to help me, wants to uphold me to the right hand of your righteousness. There are no other gods like this. Thank you for being my God and thank you for speaking to me this morning. You know what you have just done, folks? You have worshiped God. But worship doesn't take place in a vacuum. It's based on truth about God. And then worship is a response to that truth. It's, it's talking back to him about what he has told us telling him why he's special because of this. Or you come to that incident in the, in the Gospels where blind Bartimaeus is 
outside the gates of Jericho and he can't see what's going on because he's blind and he hears this commotion of people moving this direction and he says to somebody, what's, what's going on? And they say, that's Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. And everybody says, shut up, that's Jesus, we can't hear him. And he cries all the louder, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. And you know what Jesus does? He stops. And he comes over to blind Barnabas and he says, what can I do for you? He said, I might receive my sight. What do you do with that passage? You stop right there and you say, oh God, thank you. If I would have been in that crowd, I would have told him to shut up too. But not you. Every time I have a need and I cry out to you, you come. Thank you for being that kind of God. There is no other God like that. You know what you've just done, folks? You have worshipped God. So if I do that, it'll take me a long time to get through my Bible in a year. Well, that's not the only thing you do. I mean, you read through your Bible in a year as, you, as I think everybody should. It's not a legalistic standard. It's just, if this is where God is revealed, we ought to be reading it. But you take time with that and you talk to Him about what you saw. Or we haven't worshipped. Worship isn't a service. It's an activity that goes on between a creature who's born again and his God. And that can happen when we're singing. It can happen anywhere where God has shown us something about himself. God has just reminded us about something as we're going through the day. God has shown himself strong in some day and we stop and we worship. We, we talk back to him about what he just did for us and what he just showed us. As I said, knowing God means there's got to be a lot, of, a lot going on between us and God. That response is, is important in any relationship. I remember, again, beginning to date Patty, and, and um, relationships that are developing have a great deal of satisfaction, and they have a great deal of motivation in them. I, we were in the same choir before we traveled on a ministry team, and... Um, I wasn't particularly motivated to do anything for her because I, I really didn't know her. But once we started this conversation, I, I began laying awake nights thinking what I could do for her with the 25 cents I had. <laughs> you know, the creative ways to, to show her she's special. And you know, a relationship with God provides a lot of motivation. If it takes somebody putting a gun of, of guilt to our head to get us to read our Bibles, we're not pursuing God. We don't have a relationship with Him that's going well. And not only that, but it provides a lot of satisfaction. I remember coming back to the dorm rooms after spending an evening with Patty in the student center, and uh, my roommates, you know, would say, well, how'd it go, Romeo? You know, this kind of thing. And I'd say, oh, it's great. This woman is fantastic. There's no problem with satisfaction. And there's no problem with satisfaction with God when you have a relationship with Him. And there's no problem with motivation to serve Him and love Him with all your heart when there's relationship with God. We must know God, folks. And it starts with seeking Him with all of our heart. And then the first thing, we'll talk about two other responses, but the first response to the knowledge of God is personal communion. We must talk to God about what He has just said. You and I need to walk. If there's anything that God revealed to you this morning in this service, there needs to be time today where you talk to Him about what you saw. 
Tell him why that's important to you. Tell him why he's important to you. That's worship. It's got to be the regular communion of our lives. There are two other responses to the knowledge of God that build a relationship with God that we'll talk about this evening. But we must seek him and we, we must respond, first of all, in this personal communion.